Hey everybody, Eric here with a very clutch post Gen Con update. I know you are all dying to know, so I think it's important to get this out of the way. I ended up going three and three in my Transformers trading card game event last Thursday. Cha-ching. I did not qualify for uh, the um, big money tournament, but I did win two binders to put my cards in. So are they like cool Transformers binders? They're just black binders. They are. Transformers binders, whether or not they're cool is in the eye of the beholder, but I I think they're cool. Uh, but I had a, honestly, a really great time at Gen Con. Uh, I went with Cards Against Humanity, and they threw a party Saturday night where the designer of the Transformers trading card game was there, weirdly, so I got to talk with him. I saw some neat She-Ra cosplay. There was, um, I saw two or three classic She-Ra's, and then like two new Catra's. That's so interesting to me because there's not well, we met a fan who has a fan game, but there's not like an official She-Ra game. And so those appearing at a gaming convention is pretty special. Well, it's like a general convention. See? That is not what it stands for. It is, actually. It is literally what it stands for. What? No, it doesn't. It does. Okay, I'm going to Google. Um, guest who hasn't been introduced, who do you think is right, me or Lauren? I, I think you're right, Eric. All right, we're going to Google what does Gen Con stand for. And Gen Con stands for... Lake Geneva Wargaming Convention. Hey, oh, no. son of a bitch. You got served. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to She-Ra Progressive of Power. My name is Lauren. My name is Eric. And since we last met, I got to go somewhere cool, too. It wasn't Gen Con. I was staying home during that. But because I was in Chicago, I got to see J. Michael Straczynski at the American Writers Museum. Now, who is J. Michael Straczynski, Lauren? He is one of the original creators of She-Ra, the 80s She-Ra, and as it turns out, he apparently hasn't watched much of the new one. How do you know that, Lauren? Because he has a new book out. It is an autobiography called Becoming Superman. Um, I went to see it, and he took audience questions. He took my question about She-Ra and basically rejected it, but we'll get to that in a second. I've brought with me today my friend, Steven. He's a, a videographer, local musician, and has known me since I was basically a baby. Hello, Steven. Hello. Steven came to the museum with me. Yeah, so I came to JMS via She-Ra. So even though he's this huge writing legend responsible for Babylon 5 and uh, Sense8 and Changeling, I, I, didn't, I don't know a lot of his work. Uh, I really wanted to hear about She-Ra, and there wasn't a lot of that. The whole front row was in Babylon 5 t-shirts. And that's, so. that's how I know him. They got what I they wanted. Yeah. JMS also, I believe, contributed to the Thor movie um, via his comic writing. So you uh, at least have seen some JMS stuff before. Yeah, so it's relevant that I am not super familiar because I felt like a lot of his content at the gathering really assumed that you already sort of had a, <laughs> a rich fandom and knew what he was talking about. He discussed a lot about his writing process and his editing process and his inspiration and diversifying your portfolio. And I had no context. So I'd, I'd be interested in, in hearing more really from Steven on what he thought of the event. So one of the things that's really impressive about JMS is how much he actually wrote. When it came to Babylon 5, you're looking at someone who wrote the majority of the entire show, not just like your season premiere and your season finale. He really carried it on his back. So the sheer just diversity of 
characters and memorable monologues uh, and an interweaving plot that went through every single season that didn't end. Uh, he didn't get as much as he wanted to tell the story that he had, and he was still able to create the successful show. It's, it's to me, uh, I mean, it, it makes him a legend uh, uh, as a writer. And they say, you know, don't meet your heroes, and I left feeling better about him as a hero. Nice. It really wasn't as much of a sell of the book as I was thinking it would in and, and talking about that content, and it was the majority was a conversation and Q&A. It was a lot about art. I wrote down some quotes like, you don't make art happen, you let art happen. I Ooh. don't write, I transcribe. I definitely took some umbrage uh, with that quote. I He used an analogy of when you're watching somebody learning to dance and you watch Fred Astaire dance, you know, one of them is is is, is learning and the other is just is letting this their craft happen through them. And I, well, I understand that analogy. I understand that he's speaking from his personal experience as an artist, and there's nothing against that. But it also felt like he was trying to take this personal experience and masking it as a truism sure. that really did not ring true for me as a musician and understanding what it's like to jam and get in a groove with someone and what happens in the studio when you're trying to collaborate, when you're trying to create something. And it, it can be a challenge. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Working artists put a lot of effort into what they create. It's not like you're just letting this artistic inspiration flow through you. Um, but I, I remember hearing that line and thinking, I, I do not agree with that. Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily agree either because I know as someone who tries to create visual art often or musical art often, the vision I have in my head of what something should look like or should sound like just doesn't necessarily come from my hands naturally. And I, I wanted there to at least be some credit to practice and, mm -hmm. and all you need to do to become competent in your art. He did have some nice things to say, though, about... Um, I already said diversifying your portfolio. He gave really solid advice about why his career, in his opinion, has been so long. Because he's tried some TV writing and some movie writing and some comic writing. And he was saying that if you shy away from opportunities or fall into a niche, you, quote, die in a box. And he's still exploring new media. Like the memoir. Like a memoir. And he said he's writing a book that is all... You know, like tweets and chats and voicemails so and stuff. Yeah, and so he's still experimenting with with media, and I think that's what's keeping him relevant and creating. I mean, it's true that, like, I guess on a on a philosophical note, you know, you need to keep growing. Uh, there's an old quote uh, growing up. I remember hearing it's, you know, as soon as you uh, stop growing, you know, that's when you begin to die. And, you know, physically, yes, that's true. But also from like a personal, you know, work point of view, as soon as you stop trying to make yourself better with what you're pursuing, you're going to stagnate or you're going to plateau. Absolutely. And I think JMS would agree with you. He told an anecdote about his friend who was... Um, how you know maybe in her 50s older woman and she had a desk job but what she was passionate about was animals and photography and she said but I'm too old to be a pet photographer I'm too old to learn a new skill and start a new career and JMS told her how old will you be in three years if you don't try those things and you're going to age at the same rate you're going to be that much closer to the grave, whether you're dynamic or stagnant. And I think his advice to all of us was just choose to be dynamic. 
I was one of the things that also strikes me um, with his with his writing. I guess an overall theme of a lot of things that he writes is the idea of empathy and shared humanity, and the idea that we're all in this together, and that's how we're going to grow as a society, and that's what really makes society. I feel like that was especially salient in Sense8, and I'm glad, really glad that Sense8 was able to get a true finale, and they didn't just leave it. Oh, hanging. you mean like the OA? <laughs> like the, which I just heard was canceled yep. yesterday, and I am so disappointed because I was really into the craziness that season two became. The ending of season two is like to end there is so absurd. I'm so mad about it. Yeah. Isn't that weird though that like Netflix is where shows like get a second life, but there is no second life from Netflix. Except when they don't, yeah. But speaking of, of Netflix, I guess to bring this back to Shira, I, I wanna touch on what you just said, Stephen, about togetherness, because one of the messages of this talk was we're better together than we are apart. And not only was that in Sense8, apparently, which I haven't seen, but that's a huge theme in Shira, old and new. The Rebellion, the Princess Alliance, they have to be together because they're stronger when their powers are united. And so I really thought he would love to talk about new Shira and like make some of those connections. And when I posed my question, which was essentially how do you feel about the reboot? But more importantly, why do we need She-Ra in today's world? Why do we need her story now? He very much focused on the former part of the question, which was, I haven't watched it very much. I travel a lot, but it's great that a younger audience gets to have this role model. And he didn't touch on the politics of it or the the human message of it. And I thought that was kind of a shame. I understood why. I mean, it, it's not what he was there to talk about. And I, he I, just finished writing a memoir, so yeah. I, I know what it's like when you're deep into your work and you you can't you don't have the time or attention to read or consume any other entertainment. So I I give him a pass on that, um, only because like I know I totally know what that's like where you can't consume anything. But the, I know where. Oh, go ahead. But there does also seem to be a reticence among some creatives to ascribe any political intention to their work even when it's obviously political i'm not saying that this is jms because also like yeah people get mad at me because i don't watch tv either but like i feel like sometimes people are afraid to just commit to the politics i mean yes work should speak for itself but also you can speak for the work right that is true and that i think is sort of where this conversation is going to peak and end for me is JMS is an extraordinarily vocal and political person on Twitter. So on August 3rd, the tw the original tweet is now unavailable. I think he the, the original person got so iced out by JMS that he deleted the original tweet. But I'm remembering it, and it was very much about, is it okay to punch a Nazi? How do you feel about uh, retaliating against the alt-right JMS? And he says... In 1941, we went to war with the Nazis. The only reason we stopped was because we ran out of Nazis to fight. If some new members of that crowd wish to reset to 1941 and crawl back into the ring, then we will respond appropriately until we run out again. And that's, that's violent and in a way that I find just delicious. But it's not like he's shying away from politics. I mean... Maybe he was strictly for the book sale, strictly for that event, but he's extremely vocal. I mean, he created She-Ra. I think he's credited with a lot of the political themes in that cartoon, right? At least some. 
It also is fully possible that he just doesn't remember She-Ra very well. People like us know more about She-Ra than the people who made it back then. That because is, we're that crazy is not people. Right. Yeah. The message that stuck with me the most from this presentation was he said, we all fall asleep in our own lives until something wakes us up. And based on a lot of things that have happened in my personal life, from feeling sort of stagnant at, in my day job to getting a divorce, he really sent me to a reflective place about where in my life have I become complacent and where do I need to wake up and start pushing harder and applying myself more. We only have so many years here on this planet and to hear someone who's been such a prolific creator just kind of look at the audience and say, don't waste any time. That's resonant. He was asked what the what the goal of his book really was and he succinctly said, are you really doing what you want? He's, he hopes that anyone who reads this book can ask themselves that question and come to some sort of answer because it really is, art. it's a yes or no question. But speaking of artists who politically engage or don't with their work, uh, what about another artist related to She-Ra that we've talked about before, Lauren? Yeah, um, I had already noticed this because I'm on social media all the time, but also one of our fans pointed this out to me. Melendi Britt, the original voice of She-Ra, after this last weekend of mass shootings, which was incredibly intense and incredibly tragic, she posted on Instagram as well as Facebook saying enough is enough with pictures of Adora um, with tears in her eyes, you know, saying the, uh, I, the voice of this character, the person who basically is this character in real life. Uh, and kind of writes the opinions of this character these days. I think enough is enough, and Adora thinks enough is enough. I think it was very interesting and heartening to see someone say, yes, She-Ra is political. She-Ra would take a stand against this. She-Ra would not be okay with what's happening in the world right now. Someone who has the authority to say that about Adora has. I wish there was maybe a little bit more actionable there, like maybe charity link or a protest to go to, you know, some way people could be inspired by those posts and, and go out and do something about it. But I was still really heartened to see somebody who was so influential and such an integral part of this fandom say, I'm using my voice for this purpose. Fuck guns. Is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about Huntara. So we're looking at the second episode of season three of Shira and the Princesses of Power today. An episode that Lauren got really proud of everything she predicted in, and then messaged me while I was at Gen Con and was like, "You have to drop everything you're doing and watch this right now. It's the best episode of the show." And I feel like you said that just because you predicted a lot of things that happened in it. It will okay. Partial, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am stoked on the fact that some really far-fetched stuff I predicted about the origins of Hordak were true, but I'm also delighted by a couple of things in this episode, namely the soundtrack 
And in the Hordak flashback, the art style, there's oh, a lot going so on in this cool. episode that's stunning. But first, we need to hear what happens in the episode. And because I didn't bring this part of my notes today, take it away, Eric. Great. So this episode kind of happens in two tracks. So track one is Adora, Glimmer, and Bo travel to the Crimson Waste to track down the portal that they know exists as of last season. Uh, At first, they're kind of going at it alone, and they know that they have to go to the center of the Crimson Waste. But then they stumble onto uh, Etheria's version of Moss Eisley and find a woman there that Adora seems to have a crush on named Huntara. Uh, Huntara is clearly like the barbarian leader of the Crimson Waste. She even jokes that she's the princess of the Waste. Uh, Viewers of the classic show will remember her. We'll talk about comparisons later. But anyway, they kind of contract Huntara in a Han Solo move to take them to... Uh, the center of the waste and hopefully find this portal. Uh, meanwhile, back in the Fright Zone, um, Entrapta and Hordak are working on their portal machine. Uh, they run it through a first test and it blows up on them. And Entrapta's uh, and like, well, I don't understand what happened, which is a little bit of a leap, but she's like, maybe we need some kind of key. And uh, But Hordak doesn't want to hear any of it. He's not a very good scientist, and for him, one failure is enough to condemn the whole project. But Entrapta kind of perseveres and convinces Hordak to keep at it. Uh, it kind of seems like Entrapta's got a little thing for Hordak. Uh, she's very into their budding friendship, even using that word. She ends up making Hordak cool new body armor uh, out of First One's tech because she realizes that um, existence hurts Hordak. Uh, the reason being that, as Lauren predicted, Hordak is a clone of Horde Prime, as I think we are to assume all Horde generals are. But Hordak is an imperfect clone. So even though he's tactically proficient, um, his body is wrong. And so uh, existence is hard for him. And he was kind of cast out of the Horde given this this defect. So now we have a little bit of an emotional story behind Hordak. Uh, At long last, we have a sense of at least what he wants and what's driving him. Uh, So that story is what it is. Flat cut back to the Crimson Waste. Uh, Huntara has led our friends into a trap because no one is trustworthy in the Crimson Waste. And no one is surprised. Right, yeah. Well, Adora is surprised, (laughs) but only Adora. Uh, Our heroes get out. They ambush Huntara. There's a really cool fight between Adora and Huntara where Adora wrestles her sword back and turns into She-Ra. And all of a sudden, Huntara's like, holy shit, you know She-Ra? And Adora's like, I am She-Ra, bitch. And she turns into She-Ra. She doesn't say bitch. No, she doesn't say It was definitely an I am the manager moment. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Turns into She-Ra. They don't fight at that point. Huntara's just like kind of in awe. And then you learn her story, which is that she was a Horde general who, or a Horde soldier who... Uh, had issues with what the Horde was doing, and was kicked out slash ran slash, you know, something happened that she didn't want to be a part of the Horde anymore, and she's on the run from them. So she agrees to help the best friend squad for real this time. And at the end of the episode, they get to the center of the Crimson Waste and discover Mara's ship. And that ship was something that you kind of predicted. I don't want to get too far ahead of this episode. We have watched it all at this point. But we're trying to keep it, keep it on lock. Yeah. Well, yes. And plus, it's at the very end of the episode, so we can we can circle <laughs> we'll back. We'll circle back. Yeah. You mentioned that Entrapta maybe has quote unquote a thing for Hordak. What's funny is, and I can't believe I'm saying this. I can't believe I have like romantic intentions for freaking Hordak. But I actually think if someone has a thing, it's him. 
she's very clear a couple of times in this episode. She uses the word friend and she uses the word friendship. He just goes ham revealing his entire identity and his entire backstory to her. And then after that is like, also, if people hate you, I'll kill them for you, boo. I'm serious. I guess I feel like that's just him, like, not knowing how to open up to someone, which I suppose entrapped the same story, right? Right. I mean, that is their common ground is friendship is, I think, unusual for both of them. And they have an unusual way of expressing it. As long as we're there, though, we should probably talk about the uh, the flashbacks. Yes. So I loved the artistic direction of this whole portion when he reveals his backstory in almost a comedically spilling way. Just, I don't want to talk about it. Psych, here's everything. <laughs> but uh, just today, uh, Sam Szymanski, I hope I'm pronouncing Szymanski, that's my mom's maiden name. I wonder if you guys are related. Sam Szymanski on Twitter uh, is one of the storyboard artists from Shira and shared just some of the some of the art from that section. He says, This flashback wasn't in the script we got, but I wanted it to have a lot of emotional punch, so I put a ton of love and color into the storyboards to try to sell this sequence to the team. Also, uh, he is colorblind, which makes it extra interesting. Wow. But these images are beautiful, this style in Hordak's mind. So uh, this is our first um, new show appearance of Horde Prime. Horde Prime in this show is not some comical cloud that has two of everything. I don't remember if we watched that episode uh, for the podcast. I don't know if we watched it for the podcast, but I've watched it. Yeah, the the joke is that Horde Prime needs two of everything. Uh, Horde Prime is just like beefier Hordak in this version. There are definitely questions still from even though he does spill the beans. Like, there's a lot to know. Like, where is he when the portal opens? Who opened the portal and why? I wonder if we'll ever know these things. Yeah, the the order of operations is interesting because I'm not entirely sure how reliable a narrator Hordak is. It struck me during this sequence that in revealing himself to Entrapta, he would want to make himself look as awesome and innocent and just maligned as possible. So his version is sort of like, I was awesome, but I have a defect, so no one understands. And then one day I was on the battlefield, and for no reason, because I did nothing... Yeah. A portal opened, and I was sucked in. It like, super reads like that. Like, <laughs> I don't know why it happened. It's like a kid who gets caught. Why is there writing on the wall? I, it just it happened. That's for another vibrant, exciting flashback in the future. Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, also, did so I think did maybe it, this is obvious, and I'm not smart for noticing it, but I think this is the origin of Imp. Did you catch what's going on with Imp? I think Imp is one of Hordak's failed Hordak clones. That is literally what I predicted last season, and y'all were like, no. He is, though. And that was my my quote-unquote fan theory about Imp. And then they showed that little, like, floating fetus in the with little wings in the jar, and I went, oh, my God, of all the things I could have been right about. Well, they have the similar hair, right? And then yeah. Hordak has holes on his back where Imp's wings are. So, yeah, it feels like... This this must be what happens. If if I didn't know any better, because we already know that this stuff has been finished for a really long time, there's no, you know, there's no way that my idea could have been ganked. Like it was just entirely coincidence. But I was really shocked. There, I had no right to be correct about that. That was that was some bogusness, some really uh, high hubris that I was spitting, and there it is. 
Or you mean you actually are really observant and are really good at extrapolating story and insight from your vast experience of media? Thanks, Stephen. This is why we're friends. That's it. also in that scene, I I know we kind of talked about the dynamic, but I think it's so fascinating that like Entrapta has like the moral of this episode, right? But the context in which she's delivering it is so backwards. Like she has a speech about oh everybody needs help sometimes, nobody's perfect. Like if you, uh, why do we fall, Master Hordak, and you know all this shit, but. Again, she's like a little Hitler youth. They also give her the anime sparkles in that one. Yeah, second. I. I'm going to be the one who's like, speaking of current events, because I I really get the feeling in this episode that Entrapped is like a little Neil deGrasse Tyson with his uh, his really uh, off-color tweet. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the, the no. The statistics of... Yeah. It, yeah. Was def- it was definitely misguided. For those who don't know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, respected scientist world over, tweeted something like... I don't, yeah, can you look it up, Lauren? I think you might be going there, because I don't... I don't think I can accurately convey, like, the snarkiness. It's not even snarky, the haughtiness. He was basically saying we're getting emotionally worked up over mass shootings and statistically we shouldn't. Yeah. Let me find the exact words so y'all could make your own call. Says Neil deGrasse Tyson. In the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose... 500 to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide via handgun. Often, our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. And, you know, basically saying other things kill more people, so don't get your panties in a twist. And that's wild. That is buck wild. Yeah. And Trapta is Neil deGrasse Tyson, but maybe just a scotch more evil. If she's Neil deGrasse Tyson, who in this universe is Bill Nye? Bo. Yeah, it is Bo. You're right. You found it. Listen, I know my tracker pad isn't working, but I'm pretty sure we're going the wrong way. Definitely a different way than we've been going. Hey, we wouldn't be going anywhere without Huntara. This is probably just a shortcut. We're here. Speaking of things from prior She-Ra series that make a return, Huntara, the titular character who we should really talk about. So you might have heard Lauren and I talk about the original Huntara episode, Beloved by Fans but Not by Us. It's Beloved by Fans? It's a favorite, yeah. I feel like I'm feeling deja vu. I must have had this reaction last time you, you said this to You certainly did because you were like, this is a classic? Ew, ew. So there was a lot wrong with the original Huntara Um so they, she was heavily black-coated because they wanted her to look like Grace Jones, but then at the last minute decided that she should be purple instead of black. So that's kind of weird. Yeah, it's as if someone said, mm, if she were black and written this way, that would be racist. It's fine if she were purple <laughs> right. and written this way. But then they also had Erica Scheimer, you know, Lou's daughter, who is a white girl, voice her as though she just smokes a lot of cigarettes. Oh, I'm Huntara. Watch out, Adora. I'm really good at voices, you guys. <laughs> and I mean, we're right on par with the, 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 the filmation version. So I, I love that immediately, like, it's Gina fucking Davis. Like, they just took all of that troublesome coding out of the character by, like, making it, like, this iconic white woman. Like, Gina fucking Davis. Yeah, and she does betray our heroes 
And I was not bothered by that because it wasn't part of like a deceitful person of color stereotype. It just nothing to do with that anymore. Right. And it did maintain from her original characteristic that like she is honorable deep down. She just doesn't super know how to express it. So I want to I want to ask Stephen this because earlier when Eric was wrapping up the episode, you said and no one was surprised and I was surprised. But I think I was surprised because I was misled by how much marketing DreamWorks put into Huntara and the images of Adora shaking Huntara's hand and Adora looking adoringly at Huntara. I was like, ah, oh, this is an ally character, obviously. And I totally, I totally was fooled like a dum-dum. Well, so I hadn't seen any of that marketing. I was you know, blissfully ignorant of it. And as soon as she appeared, I was like, okay, well, we're in kind of a lawless area where she's going to betray them and then become friends. Like, that is that is the trope. And I was like, okay, I'm correct. But the way it unfolded was not only entertaining, there was a moment that I was very, very struck by. And it is after um, Adora becomes She-Ra and uh, Huntara is in, like, this awe and, and she basically takes Santara's face, uh, her chin in her hands. And to me, that's an action that's very commonly like an older person to a younger person or very masculine, like here's looking at you kid sort of action. And I was surprised. I saw that and I kind of reacted very strongly to it because I, I did not expect that kind of physical contact, almost of an authority of someone who is clearly a younger character to an older, more experienced in the world character. And that moment was the turning point for Huntara. It felt like the transformation from Adora to She-Ra served a more metaphorical purpose in this episode because that absolutely is like her assuming this um, this position of authority where she is kind of gaga over Huntara at first. And eventually she's like, no, I, I'm the boss, right? I'm the manager, like you said. I definitely appreciate as fans of the old series, that they finally gave Adora a justified reason to yell, I am She-Ra. Uh, because, as we know from the old transformation sequence, that's what she used to yell every time she turned into She-Ra. It was the equivalent of, I have the power. It was, I am She-Ra. And to hear her say, no, She-Ra, I am She-Ra. I went, uh, I see what you did there. Hell yeah. Super, super cool. I think all the marketing is probably because of Gina Davis, because I had similar thoughts to you at first where I'm like, oh, Huntara is probably good throughout because she seems to be like the center point of season three. But then as soon as she said in the bar, you can't trust anybody in the Crimson Waste. I'm like, oh, that means her, too. She's yeah, going to betray them. Yeah. In the end, it was a very tropey arc, but I don't mind a trope if it's well crafted. So genuinely, is this, not counting the four that we haven't talked about yet, is this your favorite episode of the series to this point? I think so. I, I don't think it's as, now that I've watched the entire arc of the third season, it's so much all, it's also tied in like one mega episode that it's harder to see this as a standout. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what I felt watching it while I was consuming it. This episode was just the most hype I felt while watching this show. It's the combination of the I am She-Ra moment and also the artistic choices made in the Hordak revelation and the just pat on the back, like laughter I felt knowing that I called the, the imp as a clone thing. Are you kidding me? 
And also the five dollar Trader Jones Trader Joe's wine I was drinking through the entire season. <laughs> I agree with all of that, although I can't speak to the five dollar wine. But yeah, it is hard to break up these episodes. I feel like once you've seen them all, I almost wish I had done it episode by episode. Um, but I couldn't wait that long. And Lauren was peer pressuring me into watching them all. But man, I think in general season three is just like a big level up. And not that I mean we obviously love seasons one and two, but there's so much happening here. It feels more adult, and I'm not sure Mm -hmm. why that would be. I mean, you watch something like Adventure Time, and Adventure Time matures over many, many years in the same way Harry Potter does. And this show is just coming out so frequently and so fast that it's aging up the themes and the violence and the stakes very quickly. Yeah, just it's a real ride. I think that's. I think it's the stakes coupled with the um, deepening narrative, where we start to get a sense of like these characters have a, a history that drives them more than we knew in the first two seasons, and so you're pulled along with the weight of their struggle. Definitely, also because we said we were going to circle back, the reveal of the ship at the end Woo! is also a really notable moment like a really emotional high of wow i can't wait to watch the next episode because this is some this is some real real business that shit's crazy because you might remember last week i said having not seen this episode i said i was getting some new adventures of he-man vibes from this idea that um the first ones were colonizers like maybe because in new adventures of he-man which is the 1990s sci-fi version um there is a starship eternia that comes from the future to get Prince Adam to help save humanity. Well, so fucking the end of this episode, the ship crashed in the sand. It looks like the Starship Eternia. It's like a triangular chassis with like nacelles on either side, and it looks like Eternia. It, I, I don't, I can't fathom why anyone would be referencing New Adventures of He-Man. Because but- the toy line was cool. <laughs> the Starship Eternia toy was pretty darn cool. Well, that it was. Spoiler alert: Mara's toy, pretty cool looking too. Yeah. Dot dot dot. It it blows my damn mind because New Adventures, even among He-Man fans, is kind of like the red stepchild. But the evidence is starting to pile up in a way that you cannot deny. And more is coming. And so, well, I'll save, I'll save the rest of this talk for next week, maybe. Right. I think the point we can justifiably make right now, though, is more than ever, season three is showing us that this version of She-Ra was made with love and with attention toward every type of Masters of the Universe fan that you could possibly be. There's just something in it for everyone, even even if you if, if New Adventures was the only Masters thing you liked, guess what? It's in there. My name is Adam of Grayskull. When good is threatened by the power of Eternia, Stephen, before I recruited you to be on this episode because I recruited you just to talk about JMS but I did ask you to watch the episode and you said I don't care about spoilers should I watch it so you don't have a lot of investment or a lot of context you know we're over here geeking out about all the connections to the other stuff in Masters but without that what did you like about this did anything else strike you 
Uh, so I've only seen the first maybe three or four episodes of the first season, and I'm like I thought it was entertaining, but then there was a lot of other things that I I was off consuming. Uh, but when I was invited to to do this, I'm like, oh, I get to watch some of the new stuff. That's okay because I love jumping in with no context in things because then it forces me to one puzzle out what's happened, and just kind of also accept storytelling that is no longer as episodic as it used to be and seeing how, how they're dealing with that. And one of the things I, I really liked is that the, the main you know, story here of them you know, looking for this portal and befriending Kantara is a completely self-contained story. And I didn't need to know anything uh, about you know, the actual place where they were going. I didn't need to know uh, who Glimmer and Bo are other than that their friends. I mean, because I saw the beginning of season one, I do know, but I didn't have to. All I knew is that they're adventuring together and they're doing something for what is going to be good. And while I didn't have as much of the the background to appreciate the flashback and what that means, it was still so artistically bold. That was cool. I didn't have as much context for those character relations, but they're such bold characters that those interactions and their dialogue are fun. But one thing that's unrelated to any of that that also struck out at me, it's, it's, it's world building you see a lot in science fiction and fantasy, especially in, t- in television and film. And it's when you're setting up a scene and it's usually just like a few seconds of a place and you see maybe something happen with, with wildlife or an animal. You see it all the time, especially in Star Wars. And there's a moment in the beginning of this episode where you see like a creature and a little fly and you're like, okay, that fly is dead. I know that's going to happen. But then this creature has these spikes pop out of its body and pierce this fly. And I had this, I, I shouted because I'm like, I did not expect that whatsoever. And it's those little details when you're building this environment that to me make it really intriguing. And I was in for the ride and I think I'm gonna have to go back and watch the rest of she now. This is gonna be so much fun. I do not need your help in this. Everybody needs help sometimes. And you shouldn't be upset that you're not perfect. Take Emily. Her programming is glitchy, the left leg sticks, and she's loud. Emily's got quirks, but that's why I like her. Imperfection is what makes scientific experimentation possible. Imperfection is beautiful. At least to me. Before we go, speaking of our history, I just wanted to point out uh, we've had over 10,000 downloads of this show. Definitely uh, almost 10,000 just on uh, where Simplecast is counting. But then Eric pointed out thousands more on Spotify. And this is a humble little show that I sort of, I told the story a million times. I just kind of started it with Eric because I wanted to cheer myself up doing something cool with my friend. And this sounded dumb and it sounded like a short commitment. And now we're over 100 people download this thing a day. You guys listen to this. We have over 400 subscribers. And, you know, that's small. It's our own little corner of the Internet. But it is so much more significant than I ever imagined this program being. So for heaven's sake, we're somewhere between 10 and 15,000 downloads. And we just had a, a PR spike like a couple days ago. We're just so, so grateful to all of you. We're grateful for... The fan letters we received this week, uh, we got one from a fan named Stevie. Who is that tweet from, Eric? We got a really awesome tweet from Gabriel Silva Mateus, who uh, 
it said that one of his favorite parts of the show is that he can listen to us, uh, which is so flattering, and also complimented us on the music that we put in, which that that really hits me. So uh, thank you. I actually there is a Spotify playlist yeah, that I made of all our intro that songs. Yeah, we haven't mentioned on the on the air yet. Yeah, so I can link it on our Facebook page again. But if you search Spotify or look on our Facebook page, I made a playlist of all the songs we use in the intro, which is like a lot of like really cool like women fronted hard rock, and then a little bit of Bruce Springsteen and uh, other things. A lot of cool covers. Uh, it's good stuff. Steven, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or find the work that you're working on or see your presence in Chicago, where could they look or where should they go? Sure. Well, we're just wrapping up the first season of Unwell, uh, which is like a Midwest Gothic mystery show, and you can just search Unwell. You mean po- that show that I named? That's the one. So just search Unwell Podcast online. Uh, and you can also check out uh, the Time Lord rock band Time Crash, which I managed um, timecrashband.com for some uh, Doctor Who themed rock music. Now, do you guys actually travel through time or is it just like a fantasy? We're all traveling through time. Damn, that's true though. Listen to your Thanks for listening to she Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. <laughs>